Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Let us unite our hearts and our minds in prayer for a moment. Let us pray. O Lord, in this season of Lent, we turn to you in a humble way, recognizing that as we approach the cross and the resurrection, we prepare ourselves. Through the power of your Spirit, you speak to us. And in these very uncertain times, we hear the still small voice calling us to follow you. May my words then speak of that invitation and may Christ be glorified. Amen. It was a place with a terrible reputation. It was situated just a few miles outside of the city of Cape Town. And it was one of the black townships that was created under the apartheid regime. In the 1960s, this township called Guguletu was created. It was done so because in those days, blacks and whites lived in different places. And they were forced, black people were, to live in these townships away from the city core. I remember Guguletu well. And I remember someone saying many years ago in an article that really only misery comes from Guguletu. It was that poor and had that degree of violence. It really was in very many ways, a dangerous place. But as I have looked into Guguletu, and as I've come to appreciate and realize some of the people that have come from Guguletu, I realize that even in the midst of that, there have been some wonderful people who have emerged. And there are two that are well known in the jazz community in particular. One of them is called Winston Ngozi, and the other one, Don Shomolela. And these are two of the really great jazz musicians who have even been noted in New York City. And they came from Guguletu. And I'm sure the 97 or so thousand people who still live there must be very proud of them because there was also in Guguletu a lot of love. And in Guguletu there were wonderful people, and there are wonderful people. And Guguletu should not be looked down upon. But oftentimes, places get a reputation, don't they? And people look down on places, and not just people. And they forget some of the great characters that emerge, some of the people who have arisen from often poverty and deprivation. Well, there's one town in the Bible, in the New Testament, that was certainly looked down upon, and that was the town of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was looked down upon because hardly it is referred to, either in the Old Testament 
or even really in the new. It is a place that was on a trade route, the Via Maris, between Egypt and Asia. But I like what the writer uh, Jeremy Texler says. He says, if you're driving along an interstate highway or the Trans-Canada, and you see a turnoff and it says Nazareth, you just go by it. You don't actually go to it. It's just a destination along the way, but not one that you would stay at. It was known in many ways for being a place for an agrarian lifestyle, for some farming, some attachment to Galilee with fishing, but it was really not a place of notoriety. However, in the New Testament with the arrival of Jesus, Nazareth is lifted to a place that heretofore it had not been. The annunciation to Mary that she is going to give birth was in Nazareth. Jesus grew up, and when he finally gave his great speech and read from the prophet Isaiah, it was in the synagogue in Nazareth. Jesus was from Nazareth. And this place that had often been looked down upon and look down upon also because of its ethnic diversity, also because a lot of Gentiles as well as Jews lived there, because it was part of the trade route. This place was looked down upon. And in the encounter that Laurie read for us today, this magnificent moment where in John's gospel we have the record of the call of some of the first disciples, Nazareth, takes on a place of importance. But it does so at the beginning of Jesus' very ministry. We have heard that John the Baptist, along with some of his disciples, had already pointed out to Jesus that he was the Lamb of God. Jesus, because he knew that his ministry depended on others joining him, called disciples himself. He called Andrew and his brother Simon Peter. He called James and John the sons of Zebedee, the sons who thought themselves very privileged and felt that they had a particularly important role to play because of their wealth and their prestige, something Jesus questioned, by the way. But James and John, Andrew, Simon, Peter, they all themselves said great things about Jesus when he called them. They called him rabbi, a statement that Jesus was recognized as a teacher. They called him Messiah, Messiah, the great one who would come and liberate Israel, the one who would, in fact, be the Lord they had great phrases for him. But there were two more obscure disciples who really came to the fore in this story. And they are Philip and Nathaniel. And Philip, also himself called by Jesus, decides to go to Nathaniel, one of his friends, and invite him to come and see Jesus. And he does it with this profound statement. He says, we have found the one who Moses and the prophets have written about, Jesus 
the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And there Nazareth comes to the fore. But this was a powerful moment of invitation. It was a powerful moment where one of the least known disciples calls a person who actually in many ways in the New Testament himself is rather obscure and inconsequential except for this moment to follow Jesus who is from Nazareth, Nazareth of all places, the obscure Nazareth. So why is this important? Why did John go to great lengths to record it in his gospel? Because the dialogue that took place between Nathaniel and Jesus tells us a great deal about discipleship, tells us a lot about Nathaniel, tells us even more about Jesus himself. And as we ourselves are on this journey towards the cross and the resurrection, this is a great way for us to think about Lent. It starts off, though, with one statement by Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He was cynical. He was skeptical. Philip had come and told him that this great person who the law and the prophets had spoken about had come. And then to say he was from Nazareth, he was incredulous. He was incredulous because, well, Nazareth was not a glitzy place. Nazareth was not a noted place. It wasn't a Jericho. It, it wasn't a Jerusalem. It wasn't even a Bethlehem. Nazareth was just an agrarian merchant's town, really in nowhere. And so Nathaniel cannot get his mind around the fact that someone great could be from Nazareth. He probably, and we learned out later, that he learnt the law and he knew what the Bible said. He also had grave concerns that the Messiah would probably have come from the house of David. He might have understood if Philip had said, Jesus from Bethlehem. Now that would have made sense. That was the city of David, but not Nazareth. Nathaniel, of course, would not have known at this point that Jesus, of course, was born in Bethlehem, born in the city of David in Judea, but that he had grown up in Nazareth. So he's cynical, he's skeptical. He's also skeptical, I am sure, at the notion that people of the import of Moses or the prophets of all people would ever consider to be thinking about someone who would be from Nazareth. It would be on his imagination. But it is also true that it is believed that Nathaniel might have been from Cana, in Galilee. And Cana and Nazareth had a bit of a rivalry. It's like saying the Messiah is a Toronto Maple Leaf when you're a Montreal Canadiens fan. You would just never in your wildest dream put up with that notion. Or when there are rivalries between towns and teams and countries, you'd never conceive that it would be from somewhere else, the other 
that greatness would arise. I think that's why, honestly, a lot of people have not paid attention to those great jazz musicians in Gugulatu because they couldn't conceive that great music could come from a place that had been so looked down upon. So you can understand his incredulity in one way. You can understand why Nathaniel could not get his mind around that the Messiah would come from a place like Nazareth. But then, and this is significant, Philip comes along again. And Philip hears him say this. Now, Philip does not come to Jesus' defense. He does not give any explanation of why Jesus was from Nazareth. He doesn't even give an apologetic. He doesn't give a series of philosophical arguments to make a case for Jesus of Nazareth. He just simply says to him, these words, come and see. Now, of course, in the biblical times, in the time of Philip, it's different than an invitation that we would give today. And I say this because Philip had Jesus right there and present. He could actually physically go and meet him. Now, we often think, I do believe, that that, that is simply not good enough in our time and our place. We think that we need to give some sort of defense of Jesus, some sort of further explanation or logical defense of him. We also have 2,000 years of Christian history that we have to sort of work our way through. And some of those moments in Christian history have been full of ignominy and have not been great high points. There have been all manner of problems, and we know those, and they're highlighted all the time. Although there are also, and I really must say this, tremendous things that have happened as a result of the church over 2,000 years and how quickly they get subjugated in the mire of the problems of Christian history. But people think sometimes then that we have to sort of dig our way through all of that before we introduce anyone to Jesus. Well, I still think that what Philip said actually works. I don't agree with those who think that you cannot just simply say, come and see. Yes, you might not see him physically in the person as Nathaniel would have done, but you can still see who Jesus is. You can see him in the scriptures that pay testimony to his life and his witness, that speak of his death and his resurrection. You can see Jesus in your own life through the power of the Holy Spirit once you've invited him into your life. You can see Jesus in the life and the witness of those who are his followers and his believers. You can see Jesus when you open yourself to meet him. Philip gave this great invitation. The invitation was to come and see and meet Jesus. And the power of a person, one person, To make that invitation is incredibly powerful. And it's true, in fact, in many realms of life. I read a wonderful piece that was written by Paul Lee Tan a number of years ago. 
And it shows how one person can make a big difference in the life of the world. He wrote, in 1645, one vote gave Oliver Cromwell control of England. In 1649, one vote called Charles I to England to be executed. In 1845, one vote brought Texas into the Union of the United States. In 1868, one vote saved President Andrew Johnson from impeachment. In 1875, one vote changed France from a monarchy into a republic. In 1876, one vote gave Rutherford B. Hayes the presidency of the United States. And ominously, in 1923, one vote gave Adolf Hitler control of the Nazi party. The power of one, the power of one witness. Philip was one with that kind of a witness. And he was willing to go to Nathaniel against all Nathaniel's skepticism. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And say to him, come and see Jesus. But then what takes place? Jesus meets Nathaniel. And he says to him these incredible words. He says, for you are an Israelite and you without deceit, that he's an Israelite without deceit. Jesus then knew who this Nathaniel was. He wasn't worried about his skepticism or his cynicism. He just went right to the heart of things. He knew that this Nathaniel was someone that he could call to be in ministry. And there are many people who I think in their lives wonder, well, can I really do anything for God and for Jesus, can I have any role to play within the kingdom? Is there anything that I can do? Well, Jesus is not interested in whether or not you have a skeptical view or a cynical view. He wants to reach out to you and call you by name. And that's what he did with Nathaniel. And Nathaniel says, hold on a minute now. And then the cynicism comes out again. How do you know me? <laughs> How do you know me? And Jesus said, even before Philip, I saw you sitting under a fig tree. Jesus had already, already ahead of time, known that Nathanael was going to be called. But also, because when you sit under a fig tree, it is a symbol of someone who is reading the Torah, reading the law, learning of God, reading Moses and the prophets and the writings of the Tanakh. Sitting under a fig tree was the symbol of someone who was faithful to the law, and Jesus knew it. But it's not over at that point, is it? There is something else that happens. Nathaniel makes a declaration himself. For you are truly, he said, the Son of God and the King of Israel. I mean, you are the real thing. And here is Nathaniel, the cynic, 
turned into one who makes one of the greatest statements in the whole of the New Testament. The one who had looked down his nose in a snobbish way at Nazareth is now saying, you're the son of God and you're the king of Israel. There is no greater declaration made of Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry or an affirmation of his place than the son of God and the king of Israel. He is one with God. He is the Lord of Israel. Wow. And he makes this statement. So here the cynic, the skeptic, the one who'd sneered at at Nazareth had been turned around by the love and the power of the Nazarene himself, Jesus. What an amazing story. And I know that there are many people who are very much like a Nathaniel and really do wonder at times, particularly when life is hard, and particularly when we have our struggles, whether or not our faith is something that is worthy or or marvelous, we sometimes have our doubts about whether or not Jesus is even keeping an eye on us, and we become like Nathaniel, just that little bit cynical, and sometimes we have our doubts. Well, I read a poem this week, and I read it for the first time in maybe 15 years, and I did so because Laurie's course on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In 1945, while in prison, when deeply questioning everything, including his own future, he wrote a poem, Laurie, who am I? And this is what Dietrich wrote. I mean, this is really powerful. Who am I, they often tell me. I stepped from my cell's confinement, calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I, they often tell me. I used to speak of my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. And then really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? Restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage? struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptible woe-begone weakling? Or is something within me like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Who am I? Thou knowest, O God, I am thine. 
And I think a lot of times we feel, do we not, a bit like Bonhoeffer in his confined prison cell. And we wonder, do we not, who are we? We also wonder, I think at times, who is Christ? Well, Nathaniel did. Can anything good come from Nazareth? But when he had an encounter with Christ, his life changed, and he declared him to be the Son of God. But there's one final thing, and this is the most important. Jesus said to him, you know, I saw you under that fig tree, and maybe that's why you think that I'm calling you. But you will see greater things. He was inviting Nathanael then onto a journey of faith. He was inviting him to come and see the things that he was going to do beyond the moment of that call into the rest of Jesus' life. He was inviting him to see the cross. He was inviting him to witness the empty tomb. He was inviting him on a lifelong journey of exciting discovery of the things of God. In this Lent, he invites us into that very same journey too. Don't be cynical. Don't be skeptical, even though times are hard. Don't question yourself. Don't ask, who am I? Just simply come and see, and you will find like Bonhoeffer did, we are his, and that gives us courage. Amen.